0: Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall learn about the ways Trump is working to rewrite the rules of trade with NAFTA 2.0, a post-Brexit agreement with the United Kingdom, and what's emerging from the ongoing trade war with China. Clips today come from Counterspin, the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, The Real News, Navarra Media, The Romaniacs, On My Mind with Diane Rehm, and Behind the News from Jacobin Radio. In keeping with their
1: time-tested support for things bipartisan, corporate media saluted the passage through Congress of the U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade deal. The New York Times called it a big economic win for Donald Trump, who NPR says can say he has fulfilled his pledge to get tough on trade and eliminate bad deals made by his predecessors. NPR ends by noting that the agreement, some call NAFTA 2.0, includes provisions on things like the ozone layer and fisheries. Quote, but that hasn't been enough to satisfy environmental groups, close quote, who say it encourages pollution and doesn't address the climate crisis. Those critical of original recipe NAFTA were likewise consigned to the last but some people paragraphs of news stories and described as opposing trade rather than promoting a vision of it that places people and the environment above corporate profits. USMCA, as it's known, is on Trump virtual desk as we speak on January 23rd, here to suggest some questions we could be asking about it is Manuel Pérez Rocha. He's an associate fellow of the Institute for Policy Studies and an associate of the Transnational Institute. He joins us now by phone from Maryland. Welcome to Counterspin, Manuel Pérez Rocha.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Jenny.
1: Well, in your recent article for Inequality.org, also on IPS's site and Truthout, You say that USMCA, which was supported by the AFL-CIO and lots of Democrats, is better in some ways than NAFTA, but remains a handout to large corporations, in particular around the area of investor rights. I hope listeners will remember the outrage that NAFTA sanctioned allowing corporations to sue governments if a regulation about air quality, for instance, cuts into their profits or reduces the value of their investments. It's called Investor State Dispute Settlement, or ISDS. So what would change under this deal with regard to investor rights and that whole ISDS thing?
2: What the USMCA creates is three distinct investment protection regimes in North America. One is a regime between the United States and Canada in which ISDS no longer exists. That is definitely a positive step. Many substantive investment protections, though, will remain, but they will need to be handled on national courts or local courts or through state-to-state mechanisms rather than through international supranational tribunals, no, like with NAFTA. And then there is a system for Mexico and the United States in which ISDS persists. And this is a very strong step backwards because it really makes what I would say a necolonial distinction. Rich countries amongst themselves are using less and less ISDS, but it is very notable that it's being imposed towards global South country, which is Mexico. And in particular it is very concerning for ecological reasons. But I will touch about that later. The third other relation is between Canada and Mexico is not under the USMCA, but ISDS persists under the Trans Pacific Partnership of which Mexico and Canada are members. The United States is not. Trump also pulled out the United States from the Trans Pacific Partnership. And this is very concerning also because the great destruction of the Mexican environment by Canadian mining companies. So, all in all, Mexico remains under ISDS, whether under the USMCA or the TPP, and is very concerning, particularly for environmental reasons.
1: Well, I want to draw you out on this point that I found really interesting and disturbing. You, you note that developed countries are increasingly pulling out of ISDS among themselves, but not with regard to the global south. I mean, in one way, when we talk about this stuff, we seem to be talking about a kind of supra-sovereignty of corporations, free floating capital versus governments. But then within that, there's still this north versus south or developed versus developing dynamic going on, right? I mean, no Mexican company has ever won a case versus the U.S. or a European country.
2: Yeah, the vast majority of cases are European or United States companies suing countries of the global south. There are very few cases of companies of the global south suing countries in the north because there's not such capacity and, and such power to, to you know, hire such expensive lawyers and so on. This is really concerning that the continuation of this neocolonial system is not being dismantled, and only countries in the north are starting to get rid of ISDS amongst themselves. The European Union, for example, is starting to cancel all its internal bilateral investment treaties among their countries. Also, countries like New Zealand and Australia uh, managed to not get Investor Protection with the Free Trade Agreement with the European Union, under the argument that they have robust local courts and robust legal systems. But the case that I would like to make is that the countries in the north should help countries in the south to strengthen their internal legal systems instead of just bypassing them with ISDS.
1: Well, the example of mining in Mexico really illustrates what this can look like. And I know your report, Extraction Casino, explores this. Mining companies file suits against Latin American countries because, you know, why not? They, they might not win, but they have the time and the money to just, you know, roll the dice on it. But the people at the sharp end are communities that are trying to protect their land or trying to protect their health. The the deck is really stacked
2: here. Yeah, exactly. In the report to Extraction Casino we examine thirty eight cases of mining companies, mostly from Canada or the US, that have been filing dozens of multimillion dollar claims against Latin American countries. The World Bank's International Center for the Settlement of Investment Disputes or ICSID, This is where most of the suits come. This is a really assault against the self determination of countries when They try to enact responsible environmental policies or other kind of policies in the public interest. And Mexico just last year received two huge cases of two U.S. companies, two mining U.S. companies under NAFTA. One is called Vulcan and the other one is called Odyssey for the total amount of $4 billion. I didn't say million, I say billion dollars. That's a huge amount that many countries just cannot be subject to, particularly poorer countries like countries in Central America, where I've worked a lot, and other countries in Africa, for example, or Pakistan that also received a $4 billion demand, and this is really provoking more than anything what is called a regulatory chill. It's withdrawing or subtracting the capacity of governments to enact responsible environmental policies that, above all, help to mitigate the climate crisis that we 're living globally
1: well, we can't fight climate disruption without reducing the value of somebody 's investment period you know right. um, and, and it's bizarre to make laws that environmental laws that corporations can then just dodge by outsourcing i mean it it's as if we 're living in different worlds you know where the the climate effects or the pollution here don't affect anybody else, of course it's not true, but it seems as though the left has been a bit on the back foot in terms of trade and globalization. And I wanted to ask you what a progressive vision of trade policy looks like. How is it different from what we see now?
2: Well, the problem is that future agreements, including the new NAFTA, they're all about expanding more international trade and pushing more for increasing the supply chains. And this is what is really exceeding the planet's ecological limits. We think that a reformed international trading system must be, above all, tolerant of different ideas about how our economies and societies should be organized, and not only under this principle of more trade, more growth is better. So we have lots of proposals. We also have a paper called Beyond NAFTA 2.0, in which in our report, we, among many other things, we propose a new trade treaty framework that supports core progressive policy priorities such as universal health care, strong public services, and robust environmental protection and resolute action on climate change. There is no mention about climate change or the climate crisis in the new NAFTA. It's, it's clearly the same pattern of expanding trade, expanding investment, and expanding the depletion of the environment. In different countries.
1: Well, finally, my biggest problem with media, I think, has been the way they've played kind of a bait and switch. You know, when NAFTA was coming through, the New York Times said it would bring jobs, wealth and economic activity throughout the continent. You know, the Washington Post said, opposition to the agreement is rooted in dark forebodings, almost comically out of proportion to possible results. Well, then when NAFTA did not result in jobs, wealth and economic activity throughout the continent, these media promoters just turned and said, Oh, but it's not as bad as critics said it would be, you know, they they just kind of left their promises behind. And I think trade deals in general are kind of pre-approved by the media. You're either a smart person who understands it, or you're a Luddite, you know, with a special interest who's trapped in the past. I wonder what you would like to see journalists do more of, or maybe less of, in reporting not just on the new NAFTA, but on trade deals in general.
2: Well, what they should do in general is make the connections between the climate crisis that we live in, but also the refugee crisis from countries like Honduras, El Salvador, and what free trade agreements have done in those countries. Nobody talks about CAFTA anymore, the Central American Free Trade Agreement, but that agreement has only worked for the elites of those countries, and it has not given all the jobs that they promised they would do. So there are economic disruptions all over the world created by free trade agreements and also neoliberal policies and structural adjustment policies enacted from the World Bank and the IMF. There's little connection between the migration crisis, the poverty, rampant poverty in so many countries, and violence, and economics, no? So I think this is something that we don't see in the mainstream media very much.
3: Another area you didn't like was the drug price issue, that the drug companies pretty much liked NAFTA 2.0, as it's called. Can you explain that briefly?
4: Yeah. So in the strange turn of events, by the end, the pharmaceutical industry opposed the new NAFTA because they went from getting all kinds of new monopoly protections things like having a guaranteed right that all three countries would give extended 20 additional years of monopoly patents. So charge any price you want, only one person can sell it for, say, a second use of the same chemical. So it's like the old story with Viagra. The second use was the one we all know about, but that was originally a hair growth drug. (laughs) So it had this side effect. And they got a longer patent for the second use, even though it was the same chemical. So guaranteeing second use for basically reformulations, longer patents, patent extensions for delays, and also a guarantee of extended special monopolies for biologic medicines, in addition to the 20 years. So all of these basically perks that would block competition, the competition needed to bring down prices All of that was required so that every country who signed the agreement had to have in their domestic law all these giveaways to big pharma, which meant effectively putting on handcuffs and throwing away the key as far as Congress promising to bring down medicine prices. And again, public citizen and the Democrats and the unions basically drew a red line and just said, this is not going anywhere unless and until that gets whacked. So the irony with this vote which was a huge vote of 193 Democrats, 192 Republicans in the House, 89 to 10 in the Senate. The basic lesson of that is that it's like a new reality. U.S. trade agreements, passage is only possible if trade agreements don't have the big pharma giveaways and the extreme investor rights and do have stronger labor and environmental terms and enforcement. Because think about this vote, Ralph, versus the Trans Pacific Partnership sitting in Congress, the corpse basically melting away into nothingness for over a year after it was signed because they couldn't get a simple majority, much less this kind of overwhelming bipartisan support. So this deal is not the template. Like this is not this is what you do when a trade agreement that's bad is in place. And it's doing more damage every week. And you do what is done with the new NAFTA to try and lessen the damage. But this is not the good trade agreement. This isn't the template going forward.
3: Well, you're right, because you didn't come out for or against it, public citizen. You you stayed uh, neutral for the reasons that you've given in the last few minutes.
4: What is amazing to me is, in the end, the Republicans who are so beholden to the corporations, ultimately had to live with the progressive changes the Democrats wanted, because the alternative when the Democrats exerted some power was total business uncertainty. And so with the exception of Big Pharma, the Chamber of Commerce, all these other big business entities basically shut up and let some really major progressive changes get added as the price of having anything.
5: In the same week that impeachment articles were turned over for trial in the Senate, President Trump was able to celebrate two successes in the area of trade. First, on Wednesday, he signed a phase one trade deal with China. And then on Thursday, the Senate overwhelmingly passed the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement, also known as the USMCA or NAFTA 2.0. The USMCA passed with nearly bipartisan support in a vote of 89 to 10. The USMCA is a revision of a treaty that had first been presented last year and met substantial opposition back then. Many Democrats and the AFL-CIO agreed to support this new version of the agreement because they said labor issues that had previously been left out of it are now in this new version. However, some Democrats continued to oppose it, such as Senator Kamala Harris of California, Bernie Sanders of Vermont, and Chuck Schumer of New York. They all said that one of the main problems is that the New Deal does not take climate change into account. The key changes in the USMCA relative to the original NAFTA agreement that was passed in 1994 is that it eliminates the investor state dispute settlement provision, which greatly favored corporations. And it also increases the requirement of North American content for cars and parts from 62.5% to 75%. Also, it includes tougher standards for protecting labor rights in Mexico. Joining me now to discuss the USMCA is Nicole Ashoff. She's a sociologist, writer, and editor at Jacobin Magazine, where she has written on trade issues. Her most recent book is The Smartphone Society, Technology, Power, and Resistance in the New Gilded Age, which will be out in March with Beacon Press. Thanks for joining us again, Nicole.
6: Thanks for having me.
5: So just as we did in a segment with you on US-China trade deal, let's start with who wins and loses in this USMCA deal. What would you say? Who wins and loses here? Well,
6: experts say that NAFTA 2.0 or the USMCA is 90 percent of the original NAFTA agreement. And that agreement was designed to benefit corporations. And I think we can say the same with this agreement. It's primarily uh, going to benefit elites and uh, giant corporations and is not going to help ordinary working people a whole lot.
5: But what about these provisions that I mentioned in the introduction? For example, the requirement for a greater proportion of North American components, increasing it from 62.5% to 75%, and the elimination of the investor state dispute settlement provision. Wouldn't those benefit um, ordinary people?
6: Well, let's talk with, about the investor state dispute settlement first. I think this is a genuinely positive um, uh Development with with the new uh, agreement. So we can say that this is a good thing. It's certainly uh, particularly when it comes to uh, states ability to enact environmental uh, regulations and to limit how uh, limit the behavior of corporations. Uh, and, and the ability of corporations to, uh, basically do whatever they want in terms of investment and production, uh, this is a positive thing. So that this is a good thing. Now, whether how this is going to impact, uh, you know, ordinary people moving forward, well, this will depends on how, uh, you know, social movements and grassroots environmental movements are able to organize and, and use it as a tool to rein in corporations. Now, reg- regarding the U. the U.S. auto industry and the North American auto industry more broadly, this is a bit trickier, and I think we're not going to see the huge gains uh, in terms of job numbers that are being touted, certainly by uh, the AFL-CIO. And one of the reasons why is that if you look at the production footprint of the uh, North American auto industry and how it's evolved over the past few decades, it's become very spread out and extremely integrated between Canada. Uh, the United States and Mexico. And while it's certainly positive uh, that the, the uh, content uh, requirements have been raised to 75%, this isn't going to really result in dramatic shifts in terms of where parts and uh, are being produced, where cars are being assembled, and in particular, how many jobs are going to be created in the United States. There was some talk about having domestic content requirements. Uh, specific to the United States, which would have resulted in more auto jobs in the U.S., but that didn't get passed. So the kinds of uh, changes that auto companies are going to need to make to meet these new requirements are actually surprisingly minimal. And so I don't think we're going to see a huge increase in the number of jobs that are going to be created, uh, particularly auto jobs in the United States as a result of the USMCA.
5: Now, it's interesting how this USMCA was able to pass almost with bipartisan support. Now, there were only a handful of Democratic senators, uh, 10 of them, I believe, who voted against it. And as I mentioned earlier, they included uh, Sanders, Harris, and Schumer, among others. Now, we've got a clip here from the most recent Democratic debate, which highlighted the disagreement between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren on this issue. This deal, and I think the proponents of it acknowledge, will result in the continuation of the loss of hundreds of thousands of good paying jobs as a result of outsourcing. NAFTA, PNTR with China, other trade agreements were written for one reason alone, and that is to increase the profits of large
2: multinational corporations.
6: I led the fight against the trade deal with Asia and the trade deal with Europe because I didn't think it was in the interest of the American people. This new trade deal is a modest improvement. Senator Sanders himself has said so. It will give some relief to our farmers. It will give some relief to our workers. I believe we accept that relief. We try to help the people who need help. And we get up the next day and fight for a better trade deal.
5: I should note that other candidates on the debate stage uh, also favored a vote in favor of the uh, new USMCA. And Bernie Sanders was the only one who actually opposed it. Now, what do you make of their respective arguments, um, with regard to the USMCA? Is it an improvement over NAFTA? And wouldn't that actually justify a vote in its favor?
6: I think it depends on how you view, uh, moving forward and what kind of changes need to be, uh, put in place. I think that Sanders has the right, uh, position here, which is that if we make slight, uh, you know, n- slight tweaks to the agreement, and we we put it back and we put it in place, it just maintains this kind of status quo of trade relationships in North America and really blocks the momentum to make the big changes that we need to actually um, both create good jobs for working people and to address this looming climate crisis. If you make these small changes and say, well, this is good enough for now, in reality what you're saying is this is the framework that we're going to be operating according to, for the future, right? We're going to have to, uh, you know, revisit the the agreement in six years. But in reality, companies are, are breathing a huge sigh of relief and saying, this is the deal that's going to be in place because it's so much work to actually create something different, right? And to actually gain the momentum to build a different kind of trade agreement. So I think Sanders is right here and that we have to take this opportunity, right? Where we're actually talking about global inequality. We're actually talking about uh, the need to reconsider trade as a key issue and to link it to climate change and build something radically different rather than just make small tweaks to the status quo.
5: So following up on that, I mean, what would a more radically different uh, North American trade treaty look like?
6: Well, you know, it would have to be designed thinking about the needs not just of American workers, but also Canadian workers and Mexican workers. One of the the sort of defining features of NAFTA is that it's been uh, that it was used by corporations to threaten workers in all three countries to agree to concessions and to, you know, threaten them that they're going to lose their job, that production will be moved to another place if they try to organize a union, and that hasn't changed at all. We really need to to Take away that threat, right, to not allow corporations to move production wherever they want, uh, whenever it suits them, because there are a lot of people who are impacted by, uh, you know, production. It's not just the shareholders who we have to be thinking of. It's the stakeholders. And right now, and this is the same with the USMCA, companies can pick up and move wherever they want. No matter the impact that it has on the communities that they're operating in. So, if we want to start talking about trade, we need to think about it in terms of what would a worker-centered trade look like, right? Which is something very different from giving companies, uh, you know, these these sort of modest, uh, you know, restrictions, but really allowing them total flexibility in organizing production and jobs in, in the way that they want. So, if we want to move forward. Both in terms of creating jobs, good jobs for people, and also, you know, doing something about uh, the global climate, climate crisis. We have to actually be willing to restrict the freedoms of corporations in favor of the freedoms of communities and working
0: people. Today's episode is sponsored by Bombas, the maker of super-comfortable performance socks designed for everything from running, hiking, cycling, basketball, tennis, and more, such as maybe just sitting around, feeling comfortable, and looking stylish. Uh, Though, if you are the working-out type, uh, maybe Bombas won't be able to make your workout any easier, but it can make them more comfortable. Bombas are made with a lightweight polycotton blend, so no matter how hard you're working, your feet will stay cool, dry, and comfortable, never sweaty. They also provide support in places you didn't even know you needed it. Each sock is built with a special arch support system that's supportive, but not too tight. But of course, my favorite aspect of Bombas is their philanthropic mission of providing socks to homeless shelters, as that is consistently the number one request from those in need. Go to bombas.com slash best today and get 20% off your first purchase. That's bomba dot slash best for 20% off. Bombas.com slash best.
7: Hey I'm Rita. I'm Mesh. I'm a GP in London.
8: I'm a lung doctor.
7: And we were at the press conference where the redacted US-UK trade documents were revealed by Jeremy Corbyn.
8: Yeah, those are the ones that in the national debate were redacted. Jeremy Corbyn held them up. Yeah. And now they've been revealed in their full form.
7: They basically outlined trade talks between the UK and the US over the last two years, basically.
8: It's a big thing. Yeah. These trade talks have been completely secret. They've been denied by Boris Johnson and the Tory government. And they happened while Boris Johnson was a foreign secretary.
7: Yes, so we're going to go through them and outline some of the ways it's going to impact our NHS.
8: So in these documents, the US wants full market access as any part of future UK-US trade deals. As a doctor, that worries me because I've seen some of the effects of companies bidding for contracts in the NHS but there was one term the US trade officials used, negative listing, I didn't really understand that.
7: Yeah, so negative listing is basically where everything is on the table, apart from if it's explicitly stated to not be. So in these documents, the NHS isn't specifically listed as not being on the table, uh, not being accessible for US companies. So even though it's not explicitly included in the trade documents, there's actually a really concerning precedent from trade agreements in the past. An example of this is where in Australia the government was sued by Philip Morris, which is a massive tobacco company, when the Australian government introduced plain packaging on cigarettes. And that basically was because um, the government was getting in the way of the legal structure of the trade agreement. So that had been compromised, the government was sued, and basically it means that governments can't introduce public health strategies that are going to protect the population because corporations can get in the way.
8: As someone who's thinking as a public health doctor, if a new threat to the health of the population gets uncovered, it may be harder than ever to actually act to protect the health of people in the future. Yeah, exactly. Oh, God, okay.
7: So the US has proposed that patent law should be negotiated as part of any trade deal, and patents if you need a bit of a reminder, are basically the way that pharmaceutical companies are encouraged to make drugs. So they get exclusive access to selling a medication for a certain period of time after they've made it. And that encourages the drug companies to make the drugs because they get a return on their investment.
8: For me, the fact they're negotiating these patent laws um, with a Trump government in the US means that they're trying to extend these laws. That's not explicitly said in the documents, but, Based on the political motivations of both the Boris regime, the May May regime and Trump uh, administration, it's not exactly going to be fighting for reducing those patents. Um, That means the NHS is going to spend more on drugs. Not only that, but in these documents, there's arguments against the UK government having the ability to negotiate for drug prices. Now, at the moment there's this organization called NICE, the National Institute of Clinical Excellence, and they decide what drugs the NHS is going to buy from pharmaceutical companies. They have a bulk purchasing power where they can negotiate prices. And these trade deals are going to threaten that power. I'm gonna just bring up one example, which is particularly shocking. There's a drug called Humira, which is- Oh yeah, I've
7: heard about that.
8: Yeah, it's used for inflammatory bowel disease, rheumatoid arthritis. Um, It costs 1,400 pounds in the UK, and the same drug costs almost 9,000 pounds in the US. That's because the UK has the ability as a single provider rather than fragmented private providers. to negotiate the best deal for its population and of course the pharmaceutical company is going to lower that price if it sees a potential market that it could lose out on. So part of these negotiations relate to food safety and animal health which is indirectly related to human health right? The US describes a worst case scenario of the UK following current EU regulations.
7: Yeah which is completely absurd to me because when we think about the health of the US population. I mean, is that something that we're aspiring to? One of the things that was specifically discussed in that documentation was introducing things like chlorine chicken, and that is as bad as it sounds. I guess the other thing that they specifically brought up was around our traffic light systems.
8: Uh, One of your five a day,
7: but... So these are really important because as doctors, we know how important food is for health. We look at the US and the state of health over there, and you know that's not something that we want to be aspiring to. And one of the tools that we have in our toolbox is being able to put um, this messaging on food, for example, because that puts knowledge and information in the population's hands.
8: So something mentioned in these documents that I wouldn't assume is directly related to health is climate change. Okay. Um, And the US representative at one of the meetings said that it was a lightning rod issue, and this comes from the top.
7: Okay, so that means Trump, basically.
9: It means Trump, yeah. Yeah. When you're dealing in trade, everything's on the table. So NHS or anything else?
7: Because I think Trump had pulled out of the Paris Agreement, so his track record on the climate is really terrible.
9: Suppose
8: if you've got a polluting car or something, Um, that you bought from the US and you're unable to regulate its emissions.
7: Yeah, I mean, you can't even mention greenhouse gas emissions, right? Like that's what the legislation says that you can't put those words in any sort of legal document that we write. So I work in Tower Hamlet and kids have 10% reduced lung capacity. Exactly, Uh, uh. right. So when we're thinking about this on a population level as doctors, I mean, we need to be taking action on climate change, the way it's going to be impacting people not just like sea level rise and food insecurity, but um, increasing frequency and severity of natural disasters. You know, all of that stuff. We need to just be acting on it and we need to be acting on it quick. And we can't do that with this agreement.
8: That's it, really. Um, we've tried to touch on the really important aspects of this huge document for health.
7: Yeah. So that to me was patents, drug pricing, how international corporations can sue our government. Um, how we're going to be eating chlorine chicken, and basically no action on climate change. And
8: the traffic light system. Yeah. Um, so I'm really worried by this. <laughs> I have to say, this is shocking stuff. As a doctor, I think all healthcare professionals, in fact, everyone in the country should be really watching this space and holding these guys to account, yeah. because I don't want them negotiating the NHS anymore.
7: Brexit was basically sold to us on this premise of taking back control. But what these documents show is that we're essentially going to lose control to the US, and to Trump.
8: The NHS is actually an example of how we have control. Exactly. We have control of our own healthcare and our own health.
7: So the way that Boris responded to this press conference was basically calling it all nonsense. And what I think is nonsense is that we've got 450 pages of hard evidence in front of us. And the way that the media respond is by putting up a video of how Boris Johnson likes to eat his scones.
8: Yeah, it was the BBC Twitter account. It had a video of him eating a scone.
7: Exactly, and I I think actually what this shows though is that we just can't trust Boris. He's lied and he's lied again.
8: But there's something worse there as well. The BBC and other media organisations haven't held him to account. They've not asked him the questions. They've not revealed to the public that he has clearly lied multiple times. So we've tried to summarise the key points from this document yeah just um, a little bit really yeah uh, it's huge i'm not sure we can fully comprehend the impact this is going to have
7: i mean if you want to read all 451 pages you can find them on reddit yeah um and i guess sort of what this shows us is the labor party has always said that we can't trust the tories with our nhs and i think these documents prove it
8: i think there might be some truth in that
0: Politics is tearing us apart. We all know it. We're all tired of it. And even though I have very strong beliefs on one side of the spectrum, I still think it's a good idea to understand the positions of those with contrary beliefs. And I'm often asked if I know of any podcasts that could give listeners an insight into conservative and more moderate thinking without being absolutely nauseating. Well, try Politics Meet Me in the Middle. They broaden the conversation with experts from both sides, as well as the middle conducting discussions that allow listeners to make up their own minds each week. Kurt CoMedia's chief curator, Bill Curtis, and Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Ed Larson invite experts, politicians, thought leaders, activists, and celebrities to discuss the important issues that actually affect our lives. It's not just about today's political noise. They help you listen to all sides respectfully and maybe even teach you a thing or two. They don't always find consensus, but you'll always hear facts and opinions delivered with the respect you deserve as intelligent listeners. Politics Meet Me in the Middle is available on Apple, Stitcher or anywhere you listen to your podcasts.
10: Ingrid, does the argument that you have to pay more for better food, does it actually cut through to consumers? I mean, is it the state's job to make sure people have food produced to a high standard or is it more important to make sure everyone could afford the basics? John, um, do you know I don't know
11: what the answer to that is, actually, because ha- having lived in, in the States for a bit, I remember, and I, and I was, I had no money and I was, uh, working in a youth hostel, uh, in, in turn for bed and board. Um, and I couldn't afford, all I could afford food wise was, <laughs> God, I'm really laying on thick. All I could afford <laughs> food wise was, was tins of beans from the local 99 cent store, which is absolutely true because fresh food is so prohibitively expensive in the US. And even going back now, well, now that I got a bit more, bit more money, I need a bit more. Um, if you want to eat healthy or well in the US, it is really, really expensive. And that is where, that is, is it, you know, and that's why people often eat fast food and there's an obesity and a health crisis. So is it the, gov- is it the government's duty to provide decent food? Probably not, um, as long as it doesn't kill people. Um, there's an argument that they did, that's, that's their, the basic duty, that, that they just need to provide food that's not going to kill people. But it just contributes to, I suppose, a, a general feeling that the, it's all, life's a bit shit <laughs> and the government doesn't really... It's just going to do the absolute bare minimum to make sure that its citizens don't survive. But in terms of what Ian was saying, you know, you're know, not being able to see a US-UK trade deal flying because of things like chlorinated chicken and hormone-injected beef. I, I just... I mean, the argument that I, I hear a lot, and I, th- I think people just... They go, well, if it's good enough for the U.S., which is the number one superpower in the country and allegedly the, the sort of, you know, the leader of the Western world and the free world, then it's good enough for us. Why wouldn't we? Why would we not?
8: Yeah, they use that. And, and whenever I've had radio debates, they'll, they'll often do a thing where they're like, would you eat meat when you're in the U.S.? And, of course, my answer to that is I'm a fucking filth wizard and I'll put anything... I mean, I eat the fucking <laughs> hot dogs on the Charing Cross yeah. Road at one in yeah. the morning. I mean, I have yeah. no, literally no standards. But that isn't... I mean, you know, that, that's not necessarily the, the way that you'd have the debate. I think you can always have it as. I mean, people have this sense of the US. It's all wrapped up in ideas around like the NHS mm, and yeah. guns in schools and, you know, having to pay for a liver. You can just sort of go, you know, they do things. It's the world West over there. That's how the US does things. But we have a bit more. And I think if you can couch the argument in those terms, I, I, to me, that seems a pretty easy political argument to win. That doesn't necessarily that's, mean we're winning. No,
11: but that's the, it's, it's whether, if you ask the average UK citizen whether they identify more with like a sort of, a, a sort of Swedish or European or socialist model or the US that I think most <laughs> people would go with the US. I think they feel intrinsically hmm. more hmm. linked yeah, yeah. to yeah. them. So <laughs> I think people are genuinely excited about the, idea of the UK-US trade deal. The,
9: the Anglosphere, isn't it? The dreaded Anglosphere. Yeah, of course. There's a very funny Christina Alonso stand-up bit about her going into a sort of organic store to put down a deposit on a tomato
11: mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> with a view to buying it in a couple of months. You can understand well, I'm, all, I'm always amazed how
10: much, how much corn there is in the US and they just well, stick corn in everything because they basically subsidise yeah, their corn farmers, absolutely. don't they? And yeah. it's strange in a way that such a free market should do that mm. when you think about it. Well, it's, it's, it
11: is. It's all economics at the end of the day, isn't it? It'll be, it'll be, we'll end up in a situation where people who can afford to can have nice organic chicken and people who can't Mm. won't but that's sort of what it's like at the moment anyway isn't it so yeah
9: but it'll be further apart yeah
10: yeah it? but some Bre- brexiteers want us to be self-sufficient in food um that as long as 2014 Liz Truss was saying it was a disgrace that we imported two-thirds of our cheese and apples oh,
8: that is a profoundly moronic thing to say <laughs>
10: it is moronic yeah um particularly as you know apples are only good for quite a short time but we won't go into that and we tend to we tend to export the fish we catch and we import the fish we actually eat in britain Ian Murray you'll you'll probably know about that because obviously Scotland fishing is a fairly big industry what's your I mean they they make it makes up less than one percent of GDP but it's still a crucial issue in the Brexit debate why why do you think farming and fishing occupies such an important place
12: in the UK psyche I think it's because it's iconic I mean, this this stat may be incorrect, but it's broadly, it'll be broadly correct. More people make lawnmowers in the UK than fish. And nobody's going on about the lawnmower industry being damaged by uh, Brexit. But it's because it is iconic and it is about the, your mm. territorial waters and it's about your own food. But it, it highlights the big issues of, of, of Brexit. There's no doubt that people in broad terms who are involved in the fishing industry voted to leave. There's no doubt people involved in agriculture and farming voted to leave. And I think over the next 12 months, we're really going to see a problem for those industries. That um, You talk about Scotland in terms of fishing, the biggest one at the moment is whisky, uh, 25% tariff. Uh, that the trump administration has put out, put on the mood music was that that tariff was going to be reduced or scrapped in fact it's now going to go up and the scotch whiskey industry are thinking well you know if this is the post-brexit britain we're going to live in we're a very small country unable to take on the might of america and a president can just sign off these trade uh, these trade wars at a whim then i think we're in real trouble um and i don't know how we've got the might and the power to be able to get out of that without having a bigger trading block perhaps we should join the european union
5: Here's what Trump had to say on Wednesday about the trade deal with China.
9: Today we take a momentous step, one that has never been taken before with China, toward a future of fair and reciprocal trade as we sign phase one of the historic trade deal between the United States and China. Together we are righting the wrongs of the past and delivering a future of economic justice and security for American workers, farmers, and families. Our negotiations were tough, honest, open and respectful, leading us to this really incredible breakthrough. Most people thought this could never happen. Should have happened 25 years ago, by the way, but that's okay.
5: The phase one U.S.-China trade deal commits China to buying an additional 200 billion dollars worth of U.S. goods by 2021 and helps open up China's markets in biotechnology, beef and poultry, banking, insurance, drugs and the energy industry. Also, it obliges China to no longer require American companies to transfer their technology as a condition of doing business there. This last point had been a major issue in the negotiations. However, U.S. tariffs on $360 billion worth of Chinese imports remain in place. That's 65% of Chinese imports. Also, China will maintain tariffs on 57% of U.S. exports to China in retaliation. The Trump administration says that the U.S. tariffs are necessary in order to ensure leverage for phase two of the trade negotiations, which might not take place until next year after the elections. Joining me now to discuss the conclusion of the first phase of the U.S.-China trade agreement is Nicole Ashoff. She's a sociologist, writer, and editor at Jacobin Magazine, where she has written on trade issues. Her most recent book is The Smartphone Society, Technology, Power, and Resistance in the New Gilded Age which will be out in March with Beacon Press. Thanks for joining us, Nicole.
6: Thanks for having me.
5: So it seems that Trump has achieved two of his main, uh, three main objectives in this trade deal, that is to reduce the U.S. trade deficit with China and to strengthen U.S. companies' intellectual property rights in China. But he hasn't really dealt with the third main issue yet, which was to reduce China's industrial policy of subsidies. So all in all, who would you say wins and loses in this deal as it has been uh, signed so far.
6: Well, I think uh, if if we think about the significance of this trade deal, I think people who are describing it as a pause in this larger geopolitical restructuring between the U.S. and China are pretty accurate. I don't see this as a dramatic shift from um, sort of where we're going. And we're really in a very different position than we were, for example, two years ago, both in terms of tariffs, but also um, a broader kind of political rethinking of the relationship between the US and China. As far as the winners and losers, um, certainly you know when Trump was bragging about the deal and calling out uh, his friends on Wall Street, uh, you know bankers and and also oil executives as the people who would benefit, I think he made it very clear um, who will be benefiting most uh, from this trade deal. And the idea that American working people are going to be the primary beneficiaries, I think, is inaccurate.
5: So it seems that to a large extent the deal is more symbolic than anything else. Uh, China's commitments are not exactly binding, also, and the effort to reverse China's industrial policies seems unlikely to succeed, considering how important they are for Chinese economic development. Um, the economist Hajun Chang once called uh, the U.S. policy one of "quote kicking away the ladder," meaning that U.S. Uh, the U.S. once it once adva- advanced its own industrial policy and development policies uh, with uh, strong state intervention in the economy. But once it has succeeded and gotten ahead, it tries to force the rest of the world to adopt neoliberal policies with less state intervention. Would you say that that's kind of an uh, a, a, an accurate description of what's going on here?
6: Absolutely. I think both the United States and the EU are very critical of China uh, for subsidizing its own industries. But China has been incredibly successful in this regard. And over the past few decades has overtaken the U.S. in terms of trade supremacy. And it's now the leading exporter to most countries in the world. So the idea that China will completely revamp its industrial policy as a result of this trade agreement or some future agreement, maybe the next phase, uh, is is pretty unlikely in my opinion.
5: Now, what would you say would a better U.S.-China policy look like? I mean, who would benefit from it and how would it be structured?
6: I think part of the challenge is that we uh, think about trade as the primary goal and then hope that a good trade policy will result in good jobs uh, trickling down to American workers. And I think that we have to uh, reconsider the order of our priorities, uh, and not expect trade policies to de- deliver the kinds of jobs and livelihoods that we want for regular, you know, ordinary working people. So I think part of the challenge is rethinking the relationship of trade uh, to the kinds of progressive economic policies that we want, and not putting trade uh, as the kind of you know be all end all of where of where we want to go, but rather to use trade or to consider trade. As a kind of supportive role rather than hoping that uh, you know these kind of trickle down trade policies will result in good jobs for for working people,
5: can we dig a little bit deeper on that? I mean w- what kinds of uh, things would be prioritized in a better trade deal, and how would that look as an example uh, once it 's implemented
6: well, so if we wanted to work within the existing kind of framework, uh, certainly we would need to emphasize um, you know. The climate, looming climate crisis, right? And to actually lock in some, um, agreements between countries to, uh, limit their, uh, emissions. And that's certainly not on the table either, uh, with regard to this phase one deal with China or with the recently, um, passed USMCA. But also, you know, if we're thinking about trade in a, in a different way, in a radically different way, we'll have to start imagining, you know, industrial policy in a little bit of a different way you know, uh, the U.S. um, and also the EU uh, chastise China and say that China should follow the rules of the WTO. Well, one of the main criticisms is that China is, is subsidizing its own industries. But that's not something that, you know, progressives should be opposed to. If we're thinking about, you know, rebuilding manufacturing and rebuilding good jobs in the United States, there's nothing wrong with uh, industrial policy that subsidize in, infant industries, or simply trying to create, uh, if we're thinking about the Green New Deal, for example, and, and retrofitting uh, our housing stock, for example, in the United States, there's nothing wrong with uh, producing and manufacturing in sustainable ways here in the United States. But in order to do that, we have to think about trade and industrial policy a little bit differently.
3: Is the American public going to see benefits? And I'm not talking simply about the large manufacturers or the large industrial tech producers. How are we going to benefit from this deal?
13: It sounds like the question you're asking is, does this deal fulfill a bigger promise that the president made about the revival of American manufacturing, refiguring trade to really benefit Americans who had been losing out um, as a result of outsourcing and this kind of restructuring of the global economy. And honestly, no, I think this deal probably just affects things around the margins for American companies. Really? Um, it does make operating, you know, life life there easier, but I don't think it will do too much to change uh, the structure, that bigger economic structure that has resulted in a lot of our products being imported from elsewhere and the U.S. economy focusing these days on services rather than manufacturing, despite what the president says about those So, ones.
3: for example, when someone goes to a big box store to buy a television set— is the price going to be lower than it might
13: have been otherwise without this deal? No, I don't think so. Because, uh, you know, many of these products, as you said, were made in China and were being imported to the United States. Um, some of these products, uh, the United States has placed tariffs on as part of the trade war, which has increased that price. And those tariffs will remain on. So that will, you know, remain a fact of life. Some instances, the companies have responded to tariffs by moving out of China and moving into places like Vietnam or Mexico. And so some global manufacturing activity has kind of reorganized as a result of the trade war. But I don't think that will end up lowering prices for consumers because, you know, if it weren't, were not for the tariffs, uh, companies we're producing um, more cheaply, more efficiently in China. So actually, you know, moving all that manufacturing is it comes at a significant cost to companies.
3: It sounds as though what you're saying is that this China trade deal may be great for the stock market, but not so great for the everyday
13: person who may not have a portfolio. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the one exception to that, you might say, is the effects for farmers, because China has promised to open its market for pork, soy, um, uh, dairy products, a wide variety of products. So if you're an American farmer or someone who works in a job that supports the farming community, um, maybe there will be more business and more benefit to you. I mean, the farming economy has really been incredible crisis these last few years in part due to the effects of the trade war and so this deal will help address that in part but I agree with you that, you know, a big beneficiary of this deal is the stock market. And in the ceremony where the president signed the trade deal with China last week, if you looked at the audience, it included a lot of heads of Wall Street firms, big Fortune 500 companies, and the president spent a long time calling them out and talking about how much the deal would benefit uh, their interests as well. So I think that was very explicit. So
3: how is the ordinary voter? How is he? ordinary taxpayer going to feel about this deal? Are we going to see it as something that really is good for the entire country? Or are we going to see it as something that's good for the 1%?
13: To be honest, I think the way people will view this deal probably depends on their political persuasion. At this point in the United States, it seems like even economics has become so polarized, right, that people who support the president are going to view this, you know, believe what he says about this being a fantastic trade deal. And people who don't are going to weigh more heavily to the skeptics who say, you know, this is a relatively modest deal and there's way more to be done in the U.S.-China relationship. This deal does not necessarily address a lot of the complaints that the president had about China taking American manufacturing jobs and all of those criticisms that were tied to the way that outsourcing had eroded uh, American manufacturing and the middle class. And this deal really doesn't address those those issues in the U.S.-China relationship. It doesn't get at the major Chinese subsidies and industrial plans that China has used to target manufacturing industry after manufacturing industry. So I don't think it can credibly claim to be something that will boost the middle class or reverse the process of the bigger between the rich and the poor in this country.
0: let's
9: turn to some kind of policy response, progressive policy response. Certainly a lot of U.S. labor people have viewed China as just nothing but a, a low-wage rival and uh, therefore um, viewed it with considerable hostility. That is not a satisfying point of view to those of us who like to be progressive internationalists. So how do we think about China in that regard? Now, as f- to start with, as a low-wage competitor. Less so than it used to be, but it still is to some degree. How should we think and talk about it?
14: I think in general the internationalist approach to uh workers throughout the global south, so not just internationalist but also the most strategic long term approach, is to um get out of this mindset of seeing them as competitors and as doomed to be competitors, and to think about well how can we turn them from competitors into like potential comrades. Because we are in a global labor market where we're all stuck in this global race to the bottom where workers in different countries are pitted against each other for like who will work for the lowest wages and in the worst working conditions. And the only viable long-term solution to that is to um, lift everyone up. So the interests of workers in China or anywhere in the global south are tied to the long-term prospects of the working class in the U.S., So that's the approach that we have to have, that we're in this global race to the bottom. This is a shared problem, and we need to come together around shared solutions. That's easier said than done, but there are steps we can take to work towards that, and that should be the strategy.
9: What kind of steps are you thinking of?
14: Specifically around the trade war, the most obvious labor critique of the trade war is that uh, labor standards have been completely absent from the trade negotiations, you know, the Trump administration claims credit for bringing uh, labor rights issues into the NAFTA renegotiation. But on the side of the negotiations with China, there hasn't been even an attempt to bring that, that issue into the negotiations. Um, because that's just not what the China hawks care about at all.
9: And the trade war hasn't done anything to stimulate employment, despite claims to the contrary. Quite it's quite,
15: quite the opposite.
14: Quite yeah. the opposite, Yeah,
9: yeah. I mean, it's damaged the industries, uh, manufacturing industries, but also uh, agriculture. It hasn't worked in its own terms.
15: Well, and the only reason that it hasn't damaged the U.S. economy more is because the U.S. government is kind of flooding the U.S. economy with tax breaks and with uh, subsidies to the farmers who got hit. It could have had a worse impact. Employment in manufacturing is down. Uh, a lot of farmers are going bankrupt. So there's been, there's been real cost to the trade
14: war. We went into a manufacturing recession. The steel industry, which is supposed to be the big beneficiary, has seen steel prices uh, go down um, because the manufacturing industry as a
15: whole is in such bad shape.
9: Yeah, and if you make washing machines or cars, you're not going to like any tariffs that raise the price of steel.
15: Right. Any approach to this question, the question of trade that relies on framework of zero-sum competition, that if the Chinese people get wealthier, then we will get poorer or vice versa, that is not just doomed to failure – but actually is going to sort of feed nationalism that's uh, moving in a very scary direction.
9: What about uh, things like human rights? China is not a, a star in that area, not that the U.S. is either. But, but on the other hand, like if you start pushing that, it just starts smelling like regime change stuff. And it's like old Cold War crap being revived. So how do you thread that one?
14: Yeah, I've been very troubled by how uh, people will bring in human rights arguments around the trade war. The trade war is good. Uh, you know, China's doing all these bad things economically. Also look at the human rights abuses. But it's like a change in topic. There's never any attempt to then tell the story of how attacking China's economy is going to pay off for better human rights protections for Uyghurs. The economic or- squeezes
9: don't bring out the best in people.
14: Right, right. And I think what we have seen, in fact, is that, you know, you asked them um, what's been the impact of the trade war on the Chinese economy. And it hasn't ruined the Chinese economy the way that Trump tries to brag about. But what it has done is create an increased sense of threat in the Chinese ruling class. Mm-hmm. They're like, okay, the U.S. is attacking us. Um, the future is more uncertain. We have to worry much more about the, the stability of the economy. And from the perspective of the Chinese state, what that means is, okay, so how do we deal with that? One way is we need to increase our efforts to maintain social control which translates into crackdowns and violations of human rights. So I think it's not coincidental that um, as the trade war escalated in general, like US-China tensions escalated, we've seen also an escalation in crackdowns on activists of all kinds within mainland China. This is also fed into the crackdown on the protests in Hong Kong. But about Hong
9: Kong, that's where the human rights thing gets a little problematic. One wants people in Hong Kong to have Rights of free speech and and self determination, but on the other hand, um, it is also a weapon to undermine China. Again, how do we balance these these competing uh, uh, needs or uh, desires?
15: The first thing is to just is to not make excuses about the Chinese record, and to recognize that the Chinese human rights record has gotten much much worse, particularly in the last five years, Um, because prior to that, the decade prior to that, the the aughts and maybe the first couple years of the tens. There was a real opening in political space for people to do uh, labor activism, to do feminist activism. There was a greater toleration for ethnic minorities like the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. There was greater space to sort of explore the government. Differences was of identity. They both have civil society groups. Mm-hmm. So what? it was there was there was still. I, I don't want to oversell this. Like this was not a massive democratization or anything, but the space was opening up. And then it turned around.
9: What happened to change it?
15: Well, I think it's important to put this in the, in the global context. It wasn't just China where this changed. It changed in, actually in the United States, as we know that right-wing politics became more virulent in this same period. It changed in a place like Turkey. It changed in a place like India. It changed in Europe with all this anti-immigrant politics. It changed everywhere in the world. And the way that I understand this is that one of the reactions to the new social landscape after 2008 was an invigoration of these anti-liberal currents around the world. We need to address this question not in terms of how are we going to get China to change its record, but rather how can we address this problem, which is the rise of reactionary politics, reactionary nationalist, xenophobic politics, is a global problem, and we need to address it at the level of uh, the global system rather than sort of isolating China, which which actually just gives encouragement to the national, the reactionary currents in the United States.
9: So, what can the U.S. left? do for this sort of thing? The US left has very little uh, leverage over our own government, but uh, even less over the Chinese government. So how much can we do other than, um, you know, posting strenuously on Twitter? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's
15: the first and most important step.
14: (laughs) I think a really important first step is to just pause and deal in some analysis to understand what it is that we're confronting. And there's Way, way, way too little time and energy spent among people who rightly care about these issues in figuring out what are the motivations on the part of the Chinese state and what are the considerations that are that are driving them towards these crackdowns. Because if you don't know why it's happening, then what hope do you have of of changing it? Instead of that, sort of the the, the default approach is is very moralistic, like this is something that's happening that's evil. So we need to attack the evildoers. doers. Which I think in, in the case of, of China's human rights abuses, it's just not going to be an effective approach. So, for example, in the case of Hong Kong, like, we need to understand, uh, the Chinese state's deep concerns about, um, social control and social stability, not just on Hong Kong, but throughout all of the cities where there are, like, very similar problems to what is happening in Hong Kong, of inequality and rising housing prices, and um, finding a good jobs is becoming harder and harder.
15: That sounds familiar. Right? Yeah, it's not again just, not
14: just a China yeah.
15: or Hong Kong issue. It's a global issue.
14: Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, when the protest movement is is springing up within Hong Kong, you know, one of the concerns of the Chinese government is like, oh, we can't let there be a successful protest movement in Hong Kong. Because one fear is that that could lead that could become a precedent for cities in mainland China. So there's two things we got to do. First, we have to crush the protest movement and make sure that's not successful. The second is um, we need to um, use as much as possible uh, their their chief ideological tool to maintain social control, which is Chinese nationalism, and um, they uh, consistently uh, attack activists, anyone they see as problematic, as sort of foreign agents. Um, undermining china from within so that they
9: but anti-chinese sentiment coming from the u.s or elsewhere is only going to fuel that kind of national that's
14: correct that's correct it is much easier for the chinese government to tell the chinese population that um, you know these activists or protests or whatever are are agents of the west who's trying to destroy us when the western governments are in fact saying we need to destroy china <laughs> right then that just makes it all that more plausible
0: We've just heard clips today starting with Counterspin speaking with Manuel Perez Rocha about the USMCA and the media's misrepresentation of it. The Ralph Nader Radio Hour spoke with Lori Wallach about why the USMCA isn't as bad as NAFTA. And The Real News talked with Nicole Ashoff about why the USMCA is still fatally flawed and may actually make it harder to muster the political will to renegotiate for the progressive trade agreement we really need. Then switching gears, Novara Media broke down some of the preliminary talks between the US and UK over a future post-Brexit trade deal, and the Romaniacs discussed how Brexit has left the UK at the mercy of the Wild West anti-regulation ideology of the United States. And then finally, switching to China, The Real News spoke again with Nicole Ashoff about the Phase 1 trade agreement with China. Diane Rehm on On My Mind talked with Anna Swanson about who's likely to benefit from the China trade agreement and who won't. And finally, we just heard Behind the News from Jacobin Radio discussing what progressive and truly international perspective we need to have when designing trade agreements. Members will be hearing a bit more about the politics of the Democrats' helping the USMCA uh, get get pushed over the finish line and potentially uh, giving Trump a victory or at least seen as one, especially in swing states that could determine the election. To hear that and all of our bonus content, which also includes more voicemails and commentary from me, plus ad-free versions of every regular episode, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash bestofleft. And now we'll hear from you.
1: Hi, this is Barbara from California. And I just wanted to mention in response to your show about how much more Bernie Sanders supported Hillary after he lost the primary. And there was lots of numbers, like 39 rallies, but there were no clips of what he actually said at those rallies. And I couldn't help but notice that All of those states that he held those rallies in, Hillary lost. So um, it would be helpful to actually
4: know what he actually said during those rallies. Thanks. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, who helps gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. And we only had time for this one message from Barbara today because... I have kind of a lot to say in response to it. I I thought of a lot of different ways I could respond, but I decided to start with just looking at it logically. I mean, sure, I could go and try to find clips of every speech he gave at those 35 or 39 or however many rallies, but I don't think that's going to be as effective. So just logically, let's think about it. Let's take it as given that there is a divide. There are these two camps, generally speaking, the Hillary Clinton camp and generally speaking, the Bernie Sanders camp, and accusations are being flung in both directions, but for the sake of this conversation, generally Hillary Clinton supporters are saying that Bernie Sanders didn't do enough, didn't help enough, hurt Hillary Clinton's chances of winning, etc. The counter to that is, look how many rallies he did. He clearly tried so incredibly hard to get her elected that it's absurd to make that accusation. And so now Barbara asks, like, okay, so he did all those rallies, but was he really effective? What did he say? And my first response to that is just the logic of it. Just think about what people are saying now, what they have been saying for years, if Bernie Sanders had gone and done all those rallies, but not been very good at it, hadn't been a full-throated supporter, then don't you think we all would have heard that by now? Don't you think that Hillary Clinton supporters would have been making this argument all along? They wouldn't just say vague things like he didn't do good enough, he wasn't supportive enough, he didn't really try. They would say he went and gave these speeches and then didn't even... Give a full-throated endorsement, you know, that they would make that point. So I think just on logical ground, if this thing had happened that Barbara's asking about and sort of concerned that, you know, what if he didn't really do a good job in those speeches? I think if that had happened, we would have heard about it. We haven't heard about it, so I think it's less likely that that's the case. But I have more. I went and found this this video. It it doesn't translate to audio perfectly because the point of it is it's a clip of every Bernie event that he did for Hillary Clinton in 2016, all 30 whatever of them, and and so that's that's what's playing in the video. But as part of the of the video, they demonstrate the argument being made by Hillary Clinton supporters, and then counter it with contemporary reporting from Rachel Maddow, actually. No like Bernie bro Clinton hater, for sure, in Rachel Maddow. So you'll hear first from Hillary Clinton supporters who are detracting from Bernie, then you'll hear from Rachel, and then Bernie, and then Hillary Clinton herself.
4: Hillary was the nominee in 2016, and the
0: only people in hindsight who think that Bernie did a lot for her or enough for her is Bernie and his supporters. He didn't
1: stand up for Hillary or have her back or campaign for her, I think, as vigorously as he could have. There was this lingering question at the end of the Democratic primary as to whether or not Bernie Sanders really meant it when he endorsed Hillary Clinton, whether he really meant it when he said he would work his heart out all
0: over the country to get her elected. Well, he's been working his heart out, it's true. He started campaigning for Clinton basically as a full-time gig, he appears really to be flooring it for Hillary Clinton. Over five
1: days, he did 14 events for her.
6: I serve with her in the United States Senate and know her as a fierce advocate for the rights of children. For women and for the disabled, Hillary Clinton will make an outstanding president, and I am proud to stand with her.
1: I want to thank Bernie Sanders.
0: Okay, so that that was a video put together recently, but obviously using audio from 2016. Uh, I've also done a little bit more research. I tried to find articles talking about how Bernie Sanders wasn't doing a good job. Uh, of supporting Hillary Clinton from 2016. Uh, people just sort of say it nonchalantly on television, but I figured if, the, if someone wrote an article about it and presented evidence, I would want to see that. Unfortunately, I did not find anything along those lines. And again, it's hard to prove a negative, but I think if that had been the case, people would have been writing those articles at the time. Instead, what I found was from the New Yorker, uh, the Article from November 4th, 2016, Bernie Sanders' Hard Fight for Hillary Clinton. Just a couple paragraphs from that. Since conceding defeat in the primaries, Sanders has been one of the real champions of this campaign. He let his supporters yell at him and deride him as a sellout in bleak delegate breakfasts at the Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia as he endorsed Clinton and explained why they needed to do the same. He made getting support for her his priority, putting aside any subtle, undermining gestures that might have better preserved his rebel rock star status. And then continuing a little later, uh, and this is a really interesting point because this, this is actually one of the things that Clinton supporters point to as what Bernie was doing wrong or was damaging to her. So, you know, take, take whatever side of the argument you want. Continuing that article, he hints strongly that he's done some negotiating with her before getting on the stage and will continue to do so after as he hopes she is elected When praising her positions, he often says, Secretary Clinton has told me, or Secretary Clinton has promised, as though he knows that it might not work with the sort of swing audiences he is dispatched to persuade students, working-class voters, simply to declare that taking these stands is in her nature, but he knows what he wants for her to win. And so that's what I think is key, is that Bernie's whole strategy throughout the campaign was to push Hillary Clinton to the left. He started the campaign not even thinking he could win. It was just to push her to the left and and make a point. And then when he had some sway, he continued his campaign to try to build political capital that he could spend by Again, pulling Hillary Clinton to the left and and extracting promises from her. Now, if you want to argue that that was damaging to her campaign, that's fine. But he had a reason for going about what he was doing. Uh, And I have more for you, though. Uh, ABC News wrote also November 4th, 2016, Bernie goes all in for Hillary Clinton with an eye towards post-election goals. And they quote a couple of Bernie staffers saying, no one can say he didn't go all in. If they do, they're lying. And then talks about how heartbreaking it was that he went and spoke to crowds who booed him for supporting Hillary Clinton. But he pushed through that and brought those crowds around to the point where they were cheering for him, and the uh, staffer was you know, theorizing, I think that means that people believe in Bernie, they believe in the pro- progressive organizing, that he's going to be leading post-election day, meaning he was promising, if we get Hillary Clinton elected, we on the left will have political power to try to continue to pull her to the left, whereas if she doesn't win, we have none of that. And of course, that's the path we took. And then just one last one, Uh, CNN, Bernie Sanders takes umbrage when audience member says he didn't support Hillary Clinton in 2016. So obviously this one is from later. This is from May of 2019. There's a campaign's underway and- He is getting this criticism that we're debunking right now. And so this article says still Sanders occasionally runs into criticism from voters and party operatives who believe that his candidacy, in particular, his decision to continue his 2016 primary campaign, even after the contest was effectively over, ended up hurting Hillary Clinton that November. Clinton herself accused Sanders of damaging her electoral chances in her book, What Happened, which was published after she lost the election. Quote, his attacks caused lasting damage, making it harder to unify progressives in the general election and paving the way for Trump's crooked Hillary campaign, unquote, Clinton wrote in 2017. And so that argument has a lot more substance to it. And Sure. He ran against her. I, I think the way, you know, from my perspective, how you could loosely translate that is he ran against me and that hurt my chances. Well, yep. But that's what primaries are for. You have to run against people, have competing ideas. And so then you get into the weeds of, you know, were his attacks too strong or you know, did he continue his campaign too long And maybe with 2020 hindsight, knowing everything we know now and knowing that she lost the election, would he have ended his campaign a month earlier and started campaigning for her that month earlier? Maybe. But the point was that his supporters were demanding a progressive vision, and he knew that in order to keep those people excited about voting at all— he needed to promise a pathway to a progressive vision even if it was through a Hillary Clinton presidency so his whole strategy if you see it through that lens of trying to create the most progressive policy promises from a an eventual Clinton presidency as possible as a way of exciting voters to come out and vote well then everything he does makes perfect sense and there is no reason to believe that he wasn't supportive enough or didn't work hard enough or anything like that because there is simply no evidence to support that position even with all the benefit of hindsight. Oh, and just one last thing on the whole logic front. I just wanted to address the point about Hillary Clinton losing many of the states where Bernie Sanders campaigned. I just want to point out that Of course, she would have ended up losing many of the states where he campaigned. He campaigned in the states that she was most in danger of losing. That was the whole point of putting in the extra effort and trying to go to those states in an attempt to have her not lose those states. So just want to clarify that there's not like a causation between he went and campaigned and then she lost, therefore... Is it that he didn't do a good job, or p- use some sort of mass hypnosis on people to convince them to not really support her, or whatever? So, just to, to wrap up, to Barbara the caller, I, I hope that you and you know a- anyone who is sort of along those lines of questioning or doubting the actions of Bernie Sanders or his supporters or whatever. I hope that you will take what I'm saying in the spirit in which it is intended. I'm not mad at you. I don't think you're dumb. I don't think any of those things. But the mainstream media and and general sort of pro-Clinton media has been pushing this line for years. And sure, you can find the alternative version of the story that lays out facts like how many rallies he did or whatever, I mean, I, I've sort of laid some of that out, like you can find that stuff, but you have to have seen a specific article, you have to have heard that specific Rachel Maddow show from 2016, like that message, the message of what really happened, it did not get perpetuated well, and this alternate theory that, well, I, I don't know, Bernie's just sort of disappeared and didn't really support the campaign enough, like f- that caught on with people because they wanted it to be true. They wanted an explanation and they wanted to continue to be mad at Bernie Sanders. And so it's perfectly reasonable for three years later, people to not know these details, to not know how things actually went because it's been framed completely wrong by people in the media, People with followings and and uh, the, you know the story gets perpetuated this way and spread and so that's probably the story most people have heard. So as I said, I'm not mad. I don't think you're dumb. I don't think any of those things. Uh, but I, I very much want the record to be corrected because if Bernie Sanders is the nominee this time around, we really need for people to not have a lingering sense. That he doesn't deserve support because of fallacies about his perceived lack of support for Hillary Clinton four years ago. That was not the case then. So we're continuing to correct that record. And if he ends up being the nominee, the idea that he may not deserve support as some retribution for him not being supportive enough four years ago uh, simply cannot be allowed to be the case. People cannot be allowed to think that. It's completely wrong and inexcusable. I think we're going to have a little bit more, not on this exact topic uh, coming next week, but just sort of a related adjacent topic. So we're going to keep the conversation going. If you have thoughts you want to share, please uh, call them in. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash best of left. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode